Kiddos go downstairs. Miss Ashley's got some awesome things for you planned. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, Gideon. How many heard the story of Gideon before? I love that story. It's a, a story of a man who really doesn't have too many high thoughts of himself. And uh, many times in our life, we uh, kind of feel beat down and wondering where God's at. Anybody been there before? And uh, God's calling you today. Um, why don't you turn real quick in your Bibles to Judges chapter 6, 11 through 16. Judges chapter 6, 11 through 16. Israel during this period of time, again, Joshua has passed away, and the people have completely turned away from the Lord, kind of doing their own thing. And uh, during the period of the Judges, it's a really kind of a sad book uh, of the Bible because God would raise up a judge, that judge would pass away, and what would happen? The people of Israel would go back to doing their thing, and God would raise up another judge. You know, we always think of God in the Old Testament as this smiting God who just kind of pushes people down. And, but, you know, God is very faithful and merciful, and, you know, he had grace even through this whole time. He would raise up another person and then another one uh, because of his grace and his love for his people to see them... Um, blossom into all that they're called to do. But Judges chapter 6, verses 11 through 16, it says this, Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree of Oprah, which belonged to Joash, the clan of uh, Abiezar. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a winepress to hide the grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Why don't we say that together? Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord has brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. And the Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. Gideon replied, If you are truly going to help me, show me a sign to prove that it is really the Lord speaking to me. Don't go away until I come back and bring my offering to you. He answered, I will stay here until you return. Gideon hurried home. He cooked a young goat, and with a basket of flour, he baked some bread without yeast. And then carrying the meat in a basket and the broth in the pot, he brought them out and presented them to the angel who was under the great tree. The angel of God said to him, Place this meat and the unleavened bread on this rock and pour the broth over it. And Gideon did as he was told. And then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the bread with the tip of the staff in his hand, and fire flamed up from the rock and consumed all he had brought, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he cried out, O sovereign Lord, I am doomed. I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. It is all right, the Lord replied. Do not be afraid. You will not die. And Gideon built an altar to the Lord there named Yahweh Shalom, which means the Lord is peace. The altar remains in Oprah and the land of the clan of Abiezar to this day. That night the Lord said to Gideon, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old. Pull down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asheroth pole standing beside it. Then build an altar to the Lord your God here on the hilltop sanctuary. Laying the stones carefully, sacrifice the bull as a burnt offering on the altar, using as fuel the wood of the Asheroth pole you cut down. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord commanded, but he did it at night because he was afraid of other members of his father's household and the people of the town. 
Early the next morning, as the people of the town began to stir, someone discovered that the altar of Baal had been broken down and the Asherah pole beside it had been cut down. In their place, a new altar had been built, and on it were the remains of the bull that had been sacrificed. The people said to each other, who did this? After asking around and making a careful search, they learned it was Gideon, the son of Joash. Bring out your son, the men of the town demanded of Joash. He must die for destroying the altar of Baal and for cutting down the Asherah pole. But Joash shouted to the mob that confronted him, Why are you defending Baal? Will you argue his case? Whoever pleads his case will be put to death by morning. If Baal truly is God, let him defend himself and destroy the one who broke down this altar. From then on, Gideon was called Jerobabal, which means let Baal defend himself because he broke down Baal's altar. Pretty interesting stuff here. Amazing how Gideon how his response was to the Lord. And you know, we kind of make things really religious and really tight and really clean in the church, don't we, when it comes to calling of God for our life? You know, somebody gets called and we have the voice of God show up in our life and we think the response is, Lord, here I am, send me. We didn't get that from Gideon, did we? The angel of the Lord appears, and then all of a sudden Gideon starts questioning God about his activity with the children of Israel. Where are all these miracles you promised? How many, have, how many have kind of been there in your mind mentally before? We've been there before, all of us. We've all been the Gideon. And if we can take for a few minutes to realize that God is even bigger than our own doubts, God is bigger than our fears, God is bigger than our worries, God is bigger than all of that, and he comes and he meets us right where we're at. First things first I wanted us to go into is hiding from our problems. Many of us today, we have gone into with the sins of the culture and everything we're facing around us, the Christians have kind of gone into hiding mode with our lives. We've lost our voice. We just kind of are waiting for God to return. We find that Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. How many of you know you're not supposed to put wheat in a wine press? He's uh, wine presses for wine, and he's threshing this wheat, and he's down in the middle probably in a, in a place where he can hide, obviously, from them, so the Midianites wouldn't see. See, the Midianites would come through, and the Midianites would steal their crops and their livelihood, and they couldn't get any advantage. So they were getting taken from, they were getting stolen from, mistreated. And so here he is trying to stay safe in his own life. And many of us in the Christian faith today, and the American faith at least, that safety that we create is a completely godless self-reliance. Gideon didn't need God for this. Gideon was doing an activity just to keep his kind of butt clean, if you will, to keep everything in his life just okay. He just wanted to get by. And I think in our Christian faith, we get into what I call a godless self-reliance. You may be hiding from your problems, and you might have made up your mind right now for your own life that God doesn't care, and so that you've hardened your heart, and you actually have a godless self-reliance going on. And how does godless self-reliance take shape? Well, you know what I think happens? Is we stop asking God for help in our lives. You know, we've heard that horrible saying that says God helps those who help themselves. Can we all just go blah, blah, blah? Gideon was helping himself, and he was going nowhere. And you know, godless self-reliance has that, that spirit of independence that says, I can do this and I don't need God in my life. The very act of prayer should actually humble us and entreat God, saying, God, I can't do this stuff without you. The very breath that is in my life right now is as a result of a gift from you. The godless self-reliance in America right now basically erases God out of the equation and says the blessings that we have and where we're at is as a result of what we, man, have done. We can even kind of bring it down to our own personal lives. The marriage I have, the family I have, the job I have, the, the backyard all I have, that's what I've done. That's a godless self-reliance. And you know what happens in America? Turn to someone and say, are you busy today? Many times the reliance comes wrapped in something called busyness. We have a busy culture. And so what busyness does is it keeps us 
not really thinking about the things we should think about, it keeps us not even worrying about those things. We kind of cover ourselves up and our problems with our own sense of busyness. Doesn't busyness make you feel good? I love it how people boast about how busy they are. I'm so busy doing this and I'm busy doing that. And they actually feel good about that busyness. Tim Hansel was speaking at a conference. And as he was speaking, no one was paying attention. He was talking to a bunch of leaders. Now this book was written back in 91, so the framing of it's hilarious. He said all these business leaders were in their daytimers. Remember daytimers? I mean, they're still popular. People still use them. The Stephen Covey daytimer. It's as big as a Bible. Boom! Let me get you on my schedule. You know, now we have the calendar feature and Outlook and everything else. And it works great. And it's very, very uh, packaged. And it keeps us organized. But have you noticed the more organized we get, the less organized we become? I mean, it's crazy how much stuff that we have created in our life. The, the clutter is amazing as a result of our busyness. Tim Hansel was speaking at a conference, and as he was speaking, no one was paying attention. They were all very busy in their daytimers. Tim paused and said, I just want to say thanks for the impact you have made in my life. I will never forget what you have taught me. He goes on to say a couple men kind of perked up their ears and looked and kind of went back down and they were in their pens and while he was speaking. He said, I will never forget what you have taught me. You have shown me an indelible fashion precisely who I never want to become as a Christian. Hmm. He goes on to say there was a stunned silence, mouth dropped, eyes went glassy. He says, I'm quite serious. I respect your work. But I never want to be so busy that I don't have time for friends. And even God himself. You all seem to believe that if you are not in Houston on Wednesday and in New York on Friday that the kingdom's going to fall apart. I hate to tell you this, but it isn't. In some ways you are serving an impotent God. One who depends on your busyness. I'm sorry, but that's not the God I know. And as I read that, I think about my own life and my own sense of busyness and the lack of desperation that may become in my prayers. And I say, God, forgive me for my godless self-reliance cloaked in busyness. Is your life cloaked in busyness right now? See, you could be like Gideon right now, and all of us, I believe, are. And you say, what do you mean? I, I think all of us have the thing that we're hiding from. That we don't want to admit. And that we don't want to talk about. That's right staring at us in the face. And the midnight night for your life might be something that's going on that you just can't get rid of. And you've prayed and you said, where are the miracles? I need a miracle in this right now. And God flings something in your face. You know what God flings in your face? I love how God is. When I say God speaks exactly opposite of how you talk, He says, mighty man of valor, go in the strength of yours. What strength? What mightiness? This guy is all but written off God. I don't know what he's wrestling with. I don't know what he's going through in his mind for his family or what's happening but folks, haven't we in America and our American Christianity, we can do good church really good. Do you know you can do church and you don't even need God here to do church? You know that? We can all come to church and we can do church activity. But if we don't have the power of the Holy Spirit, what's the point of church? We're active and we're busy. Tim Hansel goes on to write. And he says, our calendars are full, but our hearts are empty. Have you noticed out there what's going on? Have you noticed how we communicate? We communicate less. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that even when we're communicating, that we're not even paying attention to people? I mean, literally, our faces are in the phone all day long. We can't take a moment to engage someone without somehow 
putting something socially, just a minute, I've got to get this over here so that my people who really aren't even my friends can see what's going on in my life. Can I, can I just be brutally honest with you? The 250 friends that you have could care less about you. You probably have two or three people that would give their very lives for you at best. Can I be honest with you? Can I be honest with you that when you go through hell in your life, that those people that live in the other side of the globe might say, we'll be king, I hope things are better, but they won't do anything for you. Can I be honest with you? We're busy, and yet we're not engaged. We're walking around. We've gotten to the point now where there's actually concern because people are dying because of selfieville. They're taking a picture. They forget that when you fall off a cliff that you die. So we take pictures of ourselves with our self-reliance. Look at me. And we're falling off cliffs. They have to have lanes now for people as they text out the street because people don't pay attention. We're less engaged with people now, but we're busier than ever. You know what I think needs to happen for all of us in our life? Is we need to to surrender to God again. You know, really, when's the last time where we just simply ask God for help and a task in our life? When's the last time that we offered to God thanks for the paycheck that showed up in our mail or got direct deposit? When was the last time we looked at it and said, by golly, God, thank you for the blessings that you've given to me in my house? When's the last time? It takes surrender. Gideon was so stuck. Hiding from the problem, and busy, that he forgot God had a bigger plan for him and had a bigger opportunity for him. In fact, the opportunity was so big for Gideon that he said, you're going to be the man to defeat the Midianites. Isn't that how God works? Isn't it beautiful? I'm the least of my clan, the least of my tribe. I'm the least person. I'm the last person that God you'll ever think to use. And you know why clans were so important? Because you had street cred. If you were the least clan, it was going to be hard for you to conjure up a bunch of guys to join you in battle. Wouldn't you agree? If you're the least clan, I'm not following that. That's the least clan, man. I don't don't want those guys. I want the best clan to go fight with. How could Gideon even have the clout to get people to fight? Many times in our life, what ends up happening is that we're slow to believe. By the way, anybody ever thrown a fleece out before before God? God, if you do this, then I'll believe. By the way, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Nothing. Throw the fleece out. You know why? Because you don't want to be a fickle faith Christian that every little thing that comes by, you just believe and you jump into it. How many know there's a lot of crazy, loony, Christian-type people out there If you just simply believe what they say, you're going to find yourself doing some crazy stuff. So you better be skeptical about the things. When you hear something from the Lord, if I tell you, da-da-da, the Lord says this, and you do this, you better check it out, you better dissect it, you better pray about it, you better ask someone, because there's a lot of weirdos out there in the Christian faith. And there's a lot of people saying, thus saith the Lord, that have no business saying, thus saith the Lord. So you better be skeptical. And you better test the Spirit. And you better say, God, is there something going on? Show me! How many have had show me moments in your life before and God showed you? Amen. There's nothing wrong with that. See, we, we give Gideon a bad rap. We think Gideon... No, no, no. Gideon was smart. At least, you know, when he wanted to verify, he's being asked to do a big task. If God is asking you to be a, do a big task, do some verification, do some testing, get some good wisdom around you, and ask God for help. 
Where are all the miracles and slow to believe? Look real quick to Luke chapter 24, 25. Matthew, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 24. I love this verse of Scripture. Getting thirsty here. Many of us are slow to believe. God speaks something to us and confirms it, and we still aren't getting it. And I love how Jesus responds. This is post-resurrection time. He appears to these men walking on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus, after he's talking to them, he says, You foolish people, you find it so hard to believe that all the prophets wrote, wrote in the Scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses all the way to the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Folks, what I want to tell you that the Jesus, which is the same yesterday, today, and forever, is the same Jesus speaking to you saying, listen, do you find it hard to believe the scripture? Do you find it hard to believe the promise? There comes a time where we turn from doubt and fear to faith, and we say, God, I'm jumping in. You will never be 100% sure of what you're jumping into in the first place. Do you know that? There's still the element of faith. It's still going to require you. I think one person statistically said, I don't even know how this came up, but I think it was Andy Stanley said this. He said, you're only 80% sure all the time of what you're going to do is the right thing you're going to do. You'll only get to 80%. How many of that? You're 80% sure, but you still have 20% doubt going on. You're sure, but you still have a couple questions. When you step out with God and when God takes you into a sharp turn of an area... You're going to have a lot of uncertainties. Those uncertainties will never go away. But you know what will start to develop in your life as you trust God? You will start to have confidence in what He's telling you to do is right. And you step into it anyways. Where are all the miracles the ancestors told us about? The place God calls us to isn't doubt-free. How can any place where we walk by faith and not by sight be that? No, the holy wild is where we are driving and have haunting doubts. God-hungry doubts that pull us to our knees and force us to the Word. It makes us wrestle all night and not let go until He blesses us. The holy wild throngs with true skeptics, but not borderland. It is filled with armchair doubters, dressing up excuses as theology, content with the safe God, but ironically forever disappointed in Him. Don't you love the beautiful theologians that just basically offer excuses of not stepping out in faith? And they just kind of wrap themselves in just all sorts of conversation and looking at this and looking at that, and they never step out into faith and actually do what God's called them to do. Do you have any doubts today? Good. God's going to challenge your doubts that you keep locked up in the basement of your soul grinding wheat in a wine press. Here's what I hope happens today with the spirit of Gideon for all of us, is that God challenges our doubts, and he's going to challenge them not out in the church sanctuary, because this is a place where we feel good, we get lots of energy, we're revived, but then when we go back to the place called the wine press, and we're doing what we're not supposed to be doing, and we're keeping safe, we go back to our safety place, and we're going in circles, and we're beating the, the, we're beating the wheat, and we're getting that, and we're threshing the wheat, and God's asking us to do something else. The whole time the Spirit of Christ has been there saying this, and He's saying it to you, you mighty hero. Pretty neat, isn't it? Pretty amazing how God calls that. Mark Buchanan wrote this. Be careful about your doubts, by the way. Mark Buchanan writes, Here lies the basic flaw of all doubt. It can never really be satisfied. No evidence... Is every fully finally enough? Doubt wants always to consume, but never to consummate. It clamors endlessly for an answer, and so drowns out any answer that might ever even be given. It demands proof, but will doubt the proof preferred it. Doubt then can become an appetite gone wrong. Its cravings increase the more we try to fill it. Isn't that amazing with doubt? You know, it's okay to have some doubts. 
But what's, if, if your life is geared towards doubt, no matter what happens, no matter what takes place, no matter anything, you still will have the doubt saying, well, that was this. And, oh man, I, I, I believe that, but I'm going to throw out another fleece. There comes a place of faith where you just have to step out. Michael O'Brien wrote in a novel called Father Elijah and ponders his own belief and doubt. Remember Elijah, how powerful he was? One day he's calling down the prophets of Baal. All the prophets of Baal get destroyed. And one word says, I will kill you about this time tomorrow. You're going to be dead. And Jezebel made that declaration. And Elijah goes from the strongest man in the world to running for his very life. Michael O'Brien wrote the novel called Father Elijah. ponders his own belief and doubt. His faith has led him to radical acts of self-denial and risky acts of self-sacrifice. Over and over, his faith has been bolstered by miracles. Yet just as sturdy and solid as his faith is, he is also subject to violent storms of despair and doubt. His doubts are as big and dark and menacing as his faith is bright and promising. Mark Buchanan wrote on this, he said, Perhaps the general principle is this, the depth of our doubt is roughly proportional to the depth of our faith. Those with strong faith, guess what? They're going to have equally strong doubts. The principle bears out in the other direction as well. People with a trivial and shallow faith usually have trivial and shallow doubts. You know, I've always heard about this, bigger battle, bigger devil. You know, you're going to have to face some real big doubts in your life. And the more you step into things and God has you stepping out in faith, do you know what? It's not going to be trivial. It's going to be deeper and deeper. But you're going to have to face some deeper things. We've had some transitions going on in our work even this last week. And I sit there and I wonder, it's really easy kind of going to autopilot for your life, isn't it? It's really easy just to turn that. And I realize that, God, I'm going to have to trust you this. God, I've got some doubts on how you're going to achieve this and how you're going to achieve that. But how many know God is faithful? And you know, when you're, when you're facing those doubts, here's a really cool place. I don't know where your place is that God speaks to you. I mean, God speaks everywhere, but you know what I'm talking about. But you know, I was standing there in the shower, like I said, God shows up in the shower. And you know, in that week, when uh, the days to follow, we had to make some decisions on one of our technicians. And I said, Lord, you were faithful with these other guys. You brought these guys to us miraculously. You'll bring us another guy when you need to. And I reminded God of who he was in our business and what he's done before. Folks, when you're facing your doubts, what I challenge you to do this week is remind God who he is right now in your life and what he's done in the past. Remind God of who he is. Gideon kind of did that. Remember those miracles you promised? I don't see them, God. Now comes the confrontation for all of us in dealing with this. Gideon faces some big doubts. He's been reminded that God is with him. He's seen God, the very angel of the Lord, says, I've seen your face, and I'm still living. I'm going to die. He says, now here's what I want you to do. Sacrifice a bull, and now I want you to tear down some Baal idols and Asherah poles. Gideon's like, okay. He didn't tell him when and how and where. He left the room for him, and Gideon decides, I'm going to do this Idol tearing down in the middle of the night. How many would have been that? I would have been that guy. <laughs> Strong in faith, Lord. Yeah, you, you told me, what? My dad runs that. His dad is the one running that mess. Go there. Hey, guys. we got to tear down some Asherah poles and some male altars. Okay. You realize that this whole area, this is what people do. This is their thing. This is their stuff. I, I, we're going to take it down. But here's the better thing. We're going to do it in the middle of the night when everyone's in bed. So no one can see. So we have no conflict. There are no confrontation. Anything. We're just going to go after this thing. And so for many of us, when God calls us to do big things, and God says all of a sudden, you're blessed, you're a mighty man. How many love that word? We get up here, we'll do a big anointing line. You're blessed in the city, blessed in the streets. You're a hero. And we're like, woo, woo, woo. God is good. Yes, he is. Now go tear down the nation's idols. Man, 
See, we love the God who blesses us and calls us heroic. Then when he tells us to go do some dirty work, all of a sudden we don't like that God no more. See, here's what's going to happen to you. When you realize the bales of our culture and in your own life, now comes the confrontation. It was the spirit of Baal. He said, you tear down your father's altars. All of us have, in our family, lovely heritages, and we have some pretty spicy paths. Can I get an amen there? But nobody wants to talk about the spicy past. Nobody wants to talk about the junk that has caused the problems in the household the first place. Some of us are going to have to deal with some nasty things and start to tear down some household idols that are going on in our very life. Now comes the confrontation. How many love confrontation here? Family confrontations can never be fun. And dealing with those things and tearing down the father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it, there will always be, with the gospel of Jesus Christ, a line in the sand drawn when a person becomes a believer and the old has passed away, a different person, and you become a new person. Here's the thing. If you are the, a believer, if you're saying, I believe in Jesus, I've given my life, and you're still living the same way you used to live, I question your very salvation today. I didn't get an amen there. You cannot live the same way. There is a transformation. You are. Now listen, you're going to deal with sin. You're going to deal with transgressions. You're going to deal with the, the, the reality of your life as a sinner, but also as a saint, and dealing with the old man and ripping off those things. But you will have a mind change in your heart change. You'll say, those things that used to be attractive to me are not attractive anymore because I'm living for Jesus Christ. We forget that part of the church. That's a confrontational sin part that church forgets about, that change thing. There will always be a light in the sand, though. Think about when you came to Christ, and those who are blind, the people around you are heathens, not living for the Lord, they start to look at you pretty crazy, don't they? They start to ask questions. They start to say, oh, you're judging. You're judging me. When God speaks to you, He calls you to do some heroic things that will affect things around you. The bigger picture in our culture, I love America, but America's got some big problems. Can I get an amen there? I was reading the news the other day. The uh, Boston Public Library had a drag queen reading time. And these drag queens were dressed like nuns for these little kids. And I sat there and I'm like, can you believe the propaganda that's being jammed down the throats of our young kids? How cute. Wouldn't it be great you're walking into the public library, which you pay for, by the way, you pay for that public library, and you've got a little drag queen dressed like a nun going, hickory dickory dock. Isn't that beautiful? We've got problems in America. You think about the Baal spirit, they would have temple prostitutes, male and female, that would create some kind of prosperity and a fertility God, and that's what would happen. And so they would, they would do these things at the altar, through sexual immorality, to give themselves prosperity and fertility. You say, well, that's not going on here in America. Oh, Really? Lauren Sanford writes, the veil spirit continues today. He said, number one in America that's going on is a consuming self-focus. Do you think we're a little self-focused right now? You say, well, every culture's been self No, it's getting crazier. And even Jesus said, in the last days, people will actually be lovers of themselves. You say, well, that everybody. No, but there will be an intensifying understanding that I am myself. The New Age gospel that's being preached there is, I am, I am complete. I am me. I am a God. I am, I am creating a self-awareness about myself. Consuming self-focus. Fertility cults like the one centered on the veil, focused on prosperity. Prosperity is a goal 
feeds on a consuming self-focus and leads us to offer certain sacrifices to ensure the service of self and material success. Accordingly, this is Lauren Sanford writes, the post-World War II baby boomer generation, he says, of which I'm a part, became known as the me generation. It has shaped doctrines and ministries and worship styles And this focus has infected and eventually stifled every move of the Holy Spirit in my lifetime. You think about the health and wealth gospel that's being produced out there right now. Absolute garbage from the mean generation producing that. God wants me blessed. Folks, I want to tell you right now, God wants you blessed. Can we disagree on that? But it doesn't necessarily mean that you will have a million dollars in a Ferrari. Can we just get that? Sexual immorality... Shall we talk about that for a moment? Shall we all get uncomfortable because some of us don't want to talk about this? Baal worship in ancient Israel included the use of temple prostitutes as a king of sympathetic magic to ensure the growth of crops and multiplication of livestock. Today, those who claim to believe the scriptures treat sexual immorality as a normal thing, something to be expected when an unmarried couple loves one another. Nationally, the number of couples living together without benefit of marriage has increased exponentially. This doesn't even begin to address the rise of homosexuality and the rise of its acceptance as a normal lifestyle. What have we done? Why aren't the lines clearer? The church is responsible to preach the good and the hard truth. And we've decided to rip out of our scripture what even defines sexual immorality. I was talking to one pastor out in California. We were talking, and he said to me, he's counseling a couple. They're living together. She's in drugs and stuff. And I said, first things first, here's what you need to tell that couple. To put their pants back on. And to find different places to live. So I told them word for word. They love each other. You wait till you're married. Amen. Stop sinning. Say, well, they've been living together. Well, stop living together. Find another apartment. Find another place to live. Do you remember what marriage meant to God? Do you remember our vows? They actually meant something. Do you remember truth and what the Bible declares of sexual immorality and fornication? That God calls that sin? Isn't it so funny how our Christians get the banner waving of, we don't like homosexuality. And then we go, oh wait, you're living in sin. What do we do there? What flag are you waving? What truth are you preaching? See, the reality is we have bales. And they're very loud and proud right now in our culture. And it's so sad And again, I'm preaching to the house of God, not the world. The world needs to keep doing what they're doing. They're doing a really good job at it. I'm not concerned with the world. I'm concerned with the church that has taken and subjugated the Scripture to scrutinizing how I want my life to be right now. Because that doesn't fit into the convenience of my life. I am sorry, folks, if this makes you financially inconvenient, then so be it. To hell with our opinions on what we think marriage should be. And to the parents who are raising children and are seeing this go on, I challenge you to have a heart-to-heart coffee talk with them and say, this is what I believe from Scripture that you should be doing with your life. Now you can do whatever you want to do. You can live like the devil. But I want you to know from my heart of hearts that this is God's plan for your life and you shouldn't be doing that. And leave it like it is. Didn't get an amen there. Anybody want to tear down any Baal altars right now or any Asherah poles in their life? This is how you do it. Hard truth. Jesus loves you. Yep, he does. You're a hero. But you know how the hero comes out? When you start getting the saw out, when you start knocking down junk in your life that is keeping you from the blessing of God. And if you live in sin and you subjugate yourself to sin, then you can't ask God to bless your life and get in the blessing line.
And by the way, Turning Point Church stands with millions of families and an institution called traditional marriage between one man and one woman that has been a, a staple in thousands of years in culture and understanding what God speaks and says, we believe in traditional marriage between one man and one woman and their ability to procreate and fill the earth with godly children. That's how we say it. I realize that Facebook and People Magazine will offer you other opinions, but I'm going to give you our Facebook approach to this. How does that sound? Shall we tear down some bales and Asherah poles? How about number three? Sacrifice of children. Roe v. Wade legalizing abortion in 1973. Bail? Huh. How can we just... That's okay. See, parents would offer... We did a study, and thank God for Jim and that whole Bible study they given to us. Is I remember the day that he talked about Baal worship and he said the parents would offer little infants and they would put the baby in a little altar with kind of arms stretched out and they said you can hear the screaming of babies for miles as parents would offer their children as sacrifices. And you know what's so crazy today? The sacrifice of children since 1973 and it's all in the name of a convenience and an overlapping in a woman's life and her right to choose? Are you kidding me? You don't think that America will be held accountable for its sins and its action out of convenience for a woman? I thank God. I was born in 1976. Mom, thank you for giving birth to me. How many are thankful your mama held, held hope? You know, people say, well, man, they're, they're born in rough times and rough places. How many have been born in rough times and rough places in here? My mom tells me stories. When she was growing up, there was no food. So what they would do is they would put rice in a sock and they would have them suck on the rice just to get nutrients. And the decisions that we make are based on convenience. That's why we fight the good fight and we partner with ministries like the Pregnancy Care Center, who is with these women who are dealing with big decisions, and I'm not lightening the choice, it's a big decision. But gosh, we've all got big decisions. And it's life-altering. And you have no idea. And here's the difference, and this is where we believe in God who created earth, and He's the divine creator, and that when He spoke life, as Psalm teaches us, that you were fearfully and that you were wonderfully made. Here's what's going to happen in the last days, dear loved ones. You will not be able to follow after God if you're on the wrong side of the fence of these things. You will have to make a decision and draw a line to say, I'm either with a child or I'm with the idea of convenience and financial blessing for my life. You're going to have to choose one or the other. When we had our four kids... We knew that our goal was not to be millionaires when we died. <laughs> That's not our goal. Our goal was to raise four godly children who love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, and strength. Got some bales, Asherah poles to chop down. I want to challenge you that you are a hero. And that you will have to deal with some conflicts. And you might dare say have to have some conversations with people. They're going to have some arguments. And you're going to have some disagreements. Next thing. Get a drink here. Next thing he describes the spirit of Baal in our culture. He describes it, he calls it self-mutilation. 1 Kings 18, Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal to a contest. And the very first thing the prophets of Baal do is they get out swords and knives 
And they started to cut themselves before the veil to try to get a response from that spirit. And do you know what's crazy is one-third to one-half of the young people in our culture are right now mutilating themselves. I remember when I first went into youth ministry, this young lady came up to me at the retreat. In fact, I think Mike was speaking at that one. She came here, she came up to me, and she handed me some razors, and she goes, I won't need these anymore, Pastor. And at the time, I had no idea what that was. And my heart goes out to these young people who are being attacked by the enemy. Don't you think, young people, that the enemy doesn't want to take you out? You be strong and heroic and ask God for his blessing on your life so that you can run through a troop and leap over a wall for your life. There is no coincidence to that. Cutting and burning are the most common types of non-suicidal self-injury. 70% of teens engaging in self-injury have made at least one suicide attempt, and 55% have made multiple attempts. The enemy wants to take our culture out. Do we have a spirit of bail going on in America? God, where are all the miracles? Where are all the miracles and the signs and the wonders? Lauren Sanfield, Sanford goes on to write, in the midst of all the compromise and acceptance of demonic ideas, mindsets and practices foreign to true faith, Israel did not believe they had abandoned God any more than many so-called Christians engaged in moral compromise today do. We're no different than the children of Israel. Engaging in our moral compromises and what we do, God's blessing, God's blessing. I think it's time we tear down some personal items. You're going to have to go and you're going to have to say, does my mind and my opinion on the things that I have formulated, is it based on some study group? Is it based on some group of people? Is it based on even my own just personal opinion from my life experiences? Or is it based on the Word of God? That's the litmus today. We have some idols to break down in our lives and culture, wouldn't you agree? You know, God said this, I'm looking for someone to stand in the gap. You want to be a hero today? You start standing in the gap on behalf of your nation. I've said this before, our children, we pray for our nation daily. We pray for our leaders, Democrat, Republican, we pray, God, show them your wisdom! Our American Gospels taught us this, by the way, when we go out in obedience, that as soon as we obey and do the right thing, God blesses us with huge success, and we get the promotion, the friends, the raise, and the recognition. You have to raise your hand, but how many have felt that before? Thank God, God's going to do something, He's given me a big word, and now all of a sudden, we just go into this gravy train of success, and roses on every side. You know, sometimes when you choose to obey and do the hard thing, that's simply all it is. It's choosing to obey and doing the hard thing because it's the right thing to do. And you know what? Sometimes you don't get rewarded on this side, you get rewarded on the other side of eternity. Gideon got recognized in town, didn't they? Did they put a button on his shirt? <laughs> Gideon comes out overnight. He tears down the idols, kicks down the altars. In fact, he used the very, I love this, he used the very same wood of that Asherah pole to light up a sacrifice for God. See, God will use the horrible, detestable things in your life that used to be things to hold you back, that used to bound you, that used to hold you tight, and now he says, use that for flames, for fire, for your future. And that's the greatness of God's grace. Yes, you've been forgiven, and he's going to use these things for his greater glory so that you can be a testimony for God in your life. Here's what happens. Gideon got recognized in town. They all came and said, we're going to take this guy out. Bring this, bring this son of yours out. We're going we're gonna to kill him for what he did. That's the reward he got for being a hero. Here's where the power of one begins. Why don't you come up here, Sandra, and start playing. And We're not at the close of service, everyone. We're going to be doing communion. 
but I want her to start uh, getting us back to the throne room. Not that we're already there, but get us closer. <clears throat> I love the piano in the background, don't you? Yeah. The power of one. Nate Green had given me a book called Make Your Bed. And it was a book by an Admiral William McCraven. He's a Navy SEAL. It's a fantastic book, and I was reading it the other night. And he said, the Navy SEALs have a thing called Hell Week where statistically more students quit than any other time in training. Earlier that afternoon, our class had paddled our rubber boats from Coronado down to the mud flats. Soon after arriving, we were ordered into the mud and began a series of races and individual competitions designed to keep us cold, wet, and miserable. The mud clung to every part of your body was so dense that moving through it exhausted you and tested your will to carry on. For hours, the races continued. By evening, we could barely move from the bone-chilling coldness and fatigue. Morale was declining rapidly. This was the moment of truth for a lot of students. Shaking uncontrollably with hands and feet swollen from nonstop use and skin so tender that even the slightest movement brought discomfort. Our hope for completing the training was fading fast. A SEAL instructor walked purposefully to the edge of the mud flaps. Sounding like an old friend, he softly talked into a bullhorn and offered comfort to the suffering trainees. We could join him and the other instructors by the fire, he said. He had hot coffee and chicken soup. We could relax until the sun came up, get off our feet, and take it easy. How many hear the devil saying that to you? I could sense some of the students were ready to accept his offer. The student behind me, started to move towards the instructor. I grabbed his arm and held him tight, but the urge to leave the mud was great. He broke free from my grasp and began to lunge for the dry ground. I could see the instructor smiling. He knew that once one man quit, others would follow. Suddenly, above the howl of the wind, came a voice, singing. It was tired and raspy, but loud enough to be heard by all. The lyrics were not meant for tender ears, but everyone knew the tune. One voice became two, Two became three, and then before long, everyone was singing. The student rushing for the dry ground turned around and came back beside me. And looping his arm around mine, he began to sing as well. The instructor grabbed the bullhorn and shouted for the class to quit singing. No one did. He yelled at the class leader to get control of the trainees. The singing continued. With each threat from the instructor, the voices got louder, the class got stronger, and the will to continue on the face of adversity became unbreakable. And the darkness, with the fire reflecting on the face of the instructor, I could see him smile. Once again, he had learned, we had learned an important lesson, the power of one person to unite a group. The power of one person to inspire those around him, to give him hope. If that person could sing while neck deep in mud, then so could we. And if that one person could hold on, then so could we. You know, here's the crazy thing with Gideon. Gideon was one man. One man. God called him and said, Mighty man of valor, you go defeat the Midianites. Folks, for far too long our prayers have been for this person and for that person to produce the change. And someone else to do it. And I'm telling you in your home, you're the Gideon to produce the change and to destroy the Midianites in your life. You're the one to take down the idols in the mail. I wish I could give you better news. I wish I could hire someone for you to do the work. I wish that I could sprinkle your doorways and have the blessing of God fall in your house. But it just doesn't work that way. And so today, I'm looking for one voice in here, in one family, that has made the decision to say, I am done with the Baal worship in my life. I'm done with the mediocre living. And I'm done with these things. Now this decision is not something for, it's not a big, huge call. I want everyone to respond to I want to be a Gideon. This is somebody specifically in here, person, whatever it is. And you know without a shadow of a doubt that God is speaking to you. And when we complete this time of prayer, I want us all to partake in communion, and how refreshing communion is. I, I don't want us to just be lolly, just, oh Lord, just, oh Lord. I want us to be refreshed 
We don't need more religion dumped on us to how we're supposed to feel today. I, I want us to be our heads lifted high for where our help comes from because it is a joyful time, folks. But I do want us to take a moment right now to see if there's any bales that need to be start kicked over. And I don't care if you do them in the night today. Did he ask God to forgive him for doing it in the night? Did you see him there? Did you see God rebuking him for doing it in the middle of the night? I don't care when you do it. You're going to have to deal with the dust settling afterwards anyways, either way. Day or night, it's coming at you. <laughs> like, thanks, Steve. Why don't we close our eyes for a moment? My Gideons, my heroes, my mighty men and women here, you might be hiding right now today and the Holy Spirit's light has shone upon you and is speaking very clearly to you. And today, right now, God is confronting you. And He's confronting you in a style that you're not used to. You're thinking He's coming to correct you, so to speak. And He's coming to bless you. He's coming to speak words of life into you and to call you a hero. Today, with every head bowed and every eye closed, Gideons, those in you in here who have been scared and afraid and wondering where the miracles are and what to do next, you've basically been running on autopilot. I speak to you. With every head bowed and every eye closed, simply because this is between you and God and no one else. I want you to raise your hand and say, that's me. That God is calling out. That's you. Raise your hand. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else, God's calling you out and speaking to you, saying, I'm not going to be afraid anymore. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Anyone else? Thank you. Today I want us all to pray this. Dear Jesus, I thank you for coming to me right where I'm at with the stuff I'm dealing with. My fears, my worries, my doubts. And I ask you, God, to work deep in my heart. Give me the faith that I don't have right now. Give me the strength that I don't have right now. Give me vision that I don't have right now. Thank you, God. Because I won't be the same. In Jesus' name. Amen. If we could have our leadership come up here now and get the communion ready. I want us to have finality with this.
what we have in our hands today symbolically represents the very body and the blood of Jesus Christ. As we partake of it, not only are we taking part in the resurrection power, which is wonderful, but we also get to partake in the suffering of it. Paul declared to pick up your cross and to follow me. Jesus said that, not Paul. And I want us all to have just an understanding of our commitment to the call of Christ for all of our lives. Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood. Father, we're eternally grateful. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit and you live within us. I thank you, God, that you've given us victory. You've given us freedom. And God, I thank you today that every one of us in the situations, circumstances we face, we are more than conquerors. And I pray for that kind of spirit and understanding of the power of the cross and the resurrection to take over from all the doubts and the worries and the fears that we're facing. But God, give us the strength this week as we deal with those very tough and confrontational things going on in our lives and our culture and our very backyards. And I pray through that that battles would be won and ground would be gained. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Love you very much, folks. Have a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful day. And if you see uh, Tricky down the road, send him a letter or give him a pat on the back and say thank you very much. So I love you guys. Have an awesome, awesome, awesome week.